Okay, and second question, what do you think of the show Naked and Afraid? I've never seen it. <gasps> really? <laughs> no. Should I watch it? Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology, a podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Matt Fox of Boston University, and I am pleased to be joined, as always, by my co-host and friend, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Buffalo. Welcome back, Haley. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Have you ever broken up with a statistical method? No, I really no. haven't. I, I no. There are some that are more part of my life than others, but, you know, I, I'm too friendly to break up with a statistical method. They're all just kind of lingering in the background until I need them. So you've, you've never written a, it's not me, it's you, or it's not you, it's me letter to a statistical method? No, I, I definitely have thought those thoughts in my head privately, but you know, there's a time and a place that you really might need stuff like writing a grant application and having to do a really stupid sample size calculation with p-values. Not stupid, NIH, they're not stupid. No, no. Please, nothing. please fund my studies. <laughs> so the reason I'm asking is because they, I was reading a, a blog post this morning in which was written about breaking up with p-values and the author is going to spend a year refusing to put p-values into any paper, which I, you know, I thought it was a, thought it was a pretty cool idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a difference in some ways between putting them in your own work, like writing a paper and using them versus times where you're required or compelled to use them because that's how the system works. And so I unfortunately think that I can't fully break up with them because that's how the system works. Oh, I think you can. I think you definitely okay. can. So you, well, you're arguing you just want to go on a break? Yes. Yeah. Yep. I want to go and I want to use them when I need them uh -huh. and not have to deal with them the rest of the time. Okay. All right. Well, I'm I'm fully breaking up. Oh, oh, okay. I look forward to this next year of your research where you're broken up with them. I don't think I've published a, a p-value outside of a randomized trial in, in years. That could be wrong. But have you used them? Have you used them in a grant? In a grant? No. Why would you put p-values in a grant? Well, not in a grant, but, you know, for the purpose of sample size and power calculations sure. and, you know, significance levels. And yep. I don't mean p-values in and of themselves. No, you're right. I would have put in, certainly put in power calculations. So you are correct about that. So I can't, I can't say I fully left the world of null hypothesis significance testing. So thanks for reminding me that uh, I'm not fully broken up. Well, you can always go down that path if you choose. Well, anyway, that is not why we are here today. We've got a fantastic guest. We want to welcome Dr. Mega Marotra to the podcast to talk about something that I have to say confuses the daylights out of me, which is transportability and generalizability. Mega works as a senior epidemiologist for the California Department of Public Health, working on a COVID zero surveillance research study. Welcome to the podcast, Mega. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So if you've listened to the podcast before, which I'm sure you've listened to every single episode and you've got them all memorized, you know that we always begin with some fun stuff. So we want to get that out of the way. Everyone, including you, has told us that these are actually the hardest questions to answer. We may, in fact, this time have to actually interview your cat, she who <laughs> appears to be making an appearance. What's the cat's name? This is Bowie. And she, if I put her down, she will start meowing. So I think I have to keep petting her. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to get lots of squeaks. 
We usually record with my dog on my lap, so you know we're we're pet friendly over here at Sirius Epi. Good to hear. We are super pet friendly. Mine tends to whine if if he doesn't get love every once in a while. Did you say Bowie? Yep. As in as in David Bowie. Mm-hmm. She has a uh, one blue eye and one green eye, and we saw her at the shelter, and immediately we're like, "Your name is Bowie. Even if we don't adopt you, your name is Bowie." That is fantastic. All right. Well, all right. So my first question is, tell us something about you that you think most of our listeners would not know about you. So I'm not totally sure who your listeners are, but, and I think some people probably know this, but I I think maybe one of the more interesting, it's not even that interesting, but probably one of the most interesting to me things that I do and that I care a lot about is I am an avid backpacker and through hiker. So my husband and I, every year, we plan several week-long trips through the Sierras. Unfortunately, this year, because of the fires, our trip got cut short, and that mm. is very sad. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll do it again next year. So most of, most of the time, if I'm not working, I am either planning or dehydrating food or staring at maps, trying to think about our, our weekend plans in the Sierra. We spend almost every weekend out there. Okay, I have two follow-up questions. The first is, can you make a fire without a fire starter or matches? No, no. And frankly, I don't, when we go backpacking, we don't make fires very often. We use little camp stoves and that's about it. But the state is very flammable. Yes. Um, And also like at the end of the day, we're just so tired. We get right in our tent and then get up at dawn and start hiking again the next morning. Okay. And second question, what do you think of the show Naked and Afraid? I've never seen it. (gasps) Really? No. Should I watch it? I don't necessarily condone (laughs) watching the show, but it gets watched a fair bit in my house. And I find it very upsetting because these people go out into the middle of the nowhere and take off their clothes and have to survive for 21 days with only one survival item. Well, there's two of them, a man and a woman, so they can each bring one. And they mostly are starving to death for 21 days and are being eaten alive by bugs. It's really unpleasant. That sounds awful. That is not the type of backpacking we do. We are very well prepared for whatever conditions we are going to encounter because otherwise it's not fun. Exactly. All right, so what is the last novel you read and what did you think of it? It's been a while since I fully finished a novel. I'm in the middle of probably a few. I think the last one I actually finished was Dune, which I hadn't read and it had been on my list forever. And I finally read it and it took me a while to get into it. But then once I got into it, I like couldn't stop thinking about it. And I still can't really stop thinking about it. So I'm probably going to read the rest of the novels. I think there's six or eight in the whole series. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Last question in the first section. So what is the most interesting place you would say you've ever traveled to? So a couple years ago, my husband and I went to Romania and it was kind of a random, we were in Hungary for a friend's wedding, sort of. And we were like, well, we have some time. Let's go explore a place that we've never been to and know almost nothing about. And, and so I, I looked at a map and I was like, there are some mountains in Romania. Let's go like check out these mountains and see what that's about. So we spent a few days in, um, in Transylvania. So the Northern part of Romania, which is where most of the mountain, the Carpathian Mountains are. And it was amazing. It was beautiful. Everyone yeah. was super nice. It was just like, we had such a good time. I think our regret was that we didn't allow ourselves to have more time there. We had such a packed itinerary, but it was amazing. I can't wait to go back. It- All right. So I will put Romania on my list. Uh, the only thing I know about Romania 
other than I've known several Romanians through my various travels, is there was actually an episode of Naked and Afraid that was filmed in Romania. So there was one episode where they did, and it's cold where they were, so it was even more difficult. So yeah. All right, uh, let's switch over to talking about something nowhere near as fun, but probably far more enlightening, at least for me, generalizability and transportability. And we want to start off, we're going to play a game of true-false in which you can only give us a one-word answer with no explanation, and then we'll come back later and we'll let you discuss them in more detail. All right, first one, generalizability and transportability and external validity are all exactly the same thing, true or false? False. False. Okay. Second question. Generalizability is a secondary concern after internal validity. True or false? False. Ooh. Okay. I think we're getting controversial. <laughs> Number three. We spend too much time in our epi training programs teaching internal validity and not enough time teaching external validity. I have a lot of qualms with the premise of this question, but false. Okay. Oh, false. Interesting. False. All right. Number four, last one. Worrying about external validity is largely an academic exercise that doesn't really have much in the way of real world impact. False. Wow. Four falses. So maybe I should qualify how I was dichotomizing my it depends answers into true and false. All right. So basically I was approaching this as if there's any part of the question where I might say, or any situation in which I might say false, I would say false. Um, it had to be like always true in order for me to say true. So maybe that's not the right way to play the game, but I just wanted to clarify. It, what is really interesting to me is that we've we've done true-false on this program a number of times, and there seem to be many different interpretations of what true-false is, is actually supposed to be. <laughs> so I would never have known that. That's why I wanted to clarify, because I think it, people probably use true and false differently depending on who they are and how irritating they want to be. Yeah. All right, so we're going we're gonna to come back to those concepts, but before we do just to start us off give us the give us a little bit about what your background is in terms of your training around these issues because and i want to just start off by saying my training we we talk a lot on this program about how we were brought up as how we were raised as epidemiologists and i was raised with definitely with the external validity is something that comes after internal validity and probably really we don't actually spend much time on it at all and we didn't really think much about those terms other than it was sort of mentioned so i want to get a sense for whether that's changing you may in fact be younger than i am and therefore have have gotten your training later and i'm i would say i want to get a sense for for your training in this area so I would say that my classroom training and how I was taught epi, especially at the beginning when I was getting my MPH, was probably exactly what you experienced. I don't think I had really given much thought to external validity at all, other than saying, oh, by the way, we should think about whether or not our study applies to other people. And like that was kind of the end of it. So my exposure to transportability was pretty interesting and actually was 100% because of SER. So in 2015 or maybe 2014, the SER that was in Denver. 15. 2015, yeah. So uh, Judea Pearl gave one of the keynote lectures. Mm -hmm. And I was between my first and second year of my PhD. And I was right at the point where I was starting to think about what I wanted to be when I grew up and like what I thought my dissertation work would be and trying to figure out what my interests really were. I had a strange path to where I am right now. I would definitely call myself a causal influence 
inference person, like a very theory methods driven person. But when I started a PhD program, I was like, oh, you know, that causal inference thing. I don't know about that. So I've come a long way. And I think if you if you talk to Maria Gleemore about my uh, application to the PhD program, it's probably if, if we could look at my personal statement, it's probably pretty funny how how far away from that I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had worked previously and um, before starting a PhD, I was working on HIV prevention clinical trials. And I was working on a pre-exposure prophylaxis trial at UCSF and was still working working with those data had been kind of that was my real first big research project that I was heavily involved in and doing a lot of thinking around. And so I had the benefit of working on a clinical trial of this drug, this intervention that ended up being really successful and adopted widely over the course of the time that I had been kind of working in HIV prevention. It was a, a really fortuitous moment to start my research career. I got very lucky. And so at the time, PrEP had been approved for a couple years, but there were still a lot of questions about like, oh, okay, so this, this works in trials, but like, does it work for everybody? How do we implement? It. There was a big question at the time about like, does this even work for trans women? Because there were so few trans women including included in these trials. Mm-hmm. And so I had been really like substantively motivated by a lot of these questions that I realized were basically external validity questions. And so then when I heard Judea speak about, about transportability, he framed it in a, you know, transportability is really kind of a, like a one baby step past the kind of structural causal model of, of causal inference, which is actually the version of causal inference that I learned and that I am kind of most comfortable with. So hearing him frame external validity in that world, in that model, made a lot of sense to me. And I was immediately like, oh, this is useful. This is how I can help kind of answer these questions that I care a lot about. This is this like new thing and I want to learn everything I can about it. So then I spent that summer, the rest of that summer, sitting around, well, frankly, like sitting around in Yosemite, lying next to rivers and reading all of Judea Pearl and Elias Barenboim transportability paper. You may in fact be the only person who has ever read a transportability paper <laughs> in Yosemite, but I, I could be That's wrong. Prob- that might be true. <laughs> and you also read papers in much nicer places than I do. <laughs> I'd like to point that out. Well, I mean, I'm usually yeah. hunched over at a desk, you know, with poor lighting and you're like lounging on the banks of... <laughs> of a river, which yours sounds way better than mine. It makes the, the experience a lot more pleasant. And also I have this weird, I think I learn better that way. Like if I'm just generally otherwise happy and I'm like doing things that I really enjoy and then I'm also learning about stuff that I think is cool. Like there's something about the positive associations of like, yeah, I was lying on a granite slab next to a river reading these transportability papers and like it just really really clicked. So I I would say that I didn't get really any formal training, classroom training on transportability. That was all, this is a thing I want to learn. I'm going to spend a summer reading everything I possibly can. I should also say that I, that same SER, I presented in a session that was led by Daniel Westreich, who also was doing very similar things. And he, he was very uh, gracious and willing to kind of talk to me about all these things. He ended up being on my dissertation committee and was just, is just like such a wonderful person. So I, that one SER got me a dissertation topic, a research path and a committee member. And, and it was, yeah, a very eventful SER. Daniel is a friend of the pod. So yeah, I I listened to that episode actually last night. I was like, I should, I should hear what this podcast is about. (laughs) Um, And that was the first one. I think there's only been, as of today's recording, I think there's only three up there. So I, that is correct. Yeah. So it was, you know, he, I think, 
help me hear about kind of the other perspectives and the other people working in this area. Okay, so that's interesting to know that actually outside of maybe, you know, a few programs that probably most programs are still teaching things more or less the way that I learned them. And so for our listeners, you know, we assume that our audience knows a bit about methods, but I have to admit I struggle with this one myself. So how do you define these different concepts of transportability, generalizability and external validity? So I'm going to set external validity aside for a moment because I okay. think um, I think just the internal versus external validity debate is one that is a separate topic. Generalizability versus transportability is a distinction that I think is useful when you to help clarify who you're intending to rep- apply results to. So the way I think of, about this, and I think I, I'm almost certain I learned this from Daniel, and I think that this is terminology that he uses as well generalizability is if your study population so the people who you actually have data on who are you know included in your study is a proper subset of the population you would like to apply those results to so a good example would be if you conduct a survey a large survey and you do a sub study in a, a subsample of that survey and you want to apply the results of that subsample to the full survey population or say you you do a random sample of California and you want to apply those results to the whole state of California. That would be a generalizable generalizability question. Transportability, on the other hand, is where the study population or the source population, so I use study population, source population kind of interchangeably, but target population is always the population that you want your results to apply to, the population that you care about, that is the population defined in your question. So transportability is where your source population is not a perfect subset of the target population. So, you know, this distinction gets a little bit philosophical pretty quickly if you start thinking about like superpopulations and like what does it mean to be a subset and like aren't we all humans and so aren't we, isn't this always like a perfect subset but I said false to this question because I know that these terms are not used interchangeably by a lot of people and I think that the, that is kind of the the more common more commonly these are not used perfectly interchangeably just to come back I know you said you want to put external validity aside for a minute but the way I was taught and and some sometimes talk about it to my students is that external validity and generalizability can often be used synonymously. And so not even bringing internal validity in because I agree that's a whole separate kettle of fish. Do you subscribe to that idea that external validity and generalizability are similar? I have never really thought of those two things as being more like I think if you're gonna I think you could argue that all three of those things maybe are the same if you in the sense that they are all questions about whether the population you observe and the results you get from the population you observe are relevant to the population that you care about. So in the sense that like you're specifically thinking about populations and differences between populations. Right. And if that is how you want to kind of define these terms, then I think it's reasonable to say that all three generalizability, transportability, and external validity are all interchangeable. Yeah, but there are differences, which I understand you're, you're identifying. And I'm teaching at an intro level. So I think for that purpose, I'm really trying to get to those ideas that you're talking about when you're doing your study who are these applying to broadly not the specific differences um, between the between the concepts yeah okay so if i want then to take 
I think the example you said was I take a random sample of the population of California and I do some kind of a prevalence survey on pick your disease. And I want to take that information and apply it to all of California. Is that a question of generalizability or transportability? I would call that a generalizability question. Now, if I want to take the same data, I do a random sample of the sur of the population of California, but I want to apply it to the entire United States, then is that a question of transportability or generalizability? I would also call that a generalizability question. Huh. Phew, I'm two for two, all right. <laughs> okay, now if I want to take the sample, random sample I took on the population of California and make a statement about the population of Massachusetts, is that a transportability or a generalizability question? That I would call a transportability question. Okay, so, so that really is helpful to me in sort of understanding the distinctions. I guess the question is generalizability much simpler than transportability. No, I don't, th it, not necessarily. I, I mean, I think that in some ways, conceptually, it can be because you can design a study that is a true random sample of your target population. And if you get a random sample of the target population, then yes, the, the estimation is simple because it's just, it's a random sample. You don't have to do anything fancy. And it's also conceptually nice because you have a well-defined target population and you are kind of, it's, I think it's easier to think about, even if you don't get a random sample or even if you don't intend to get a random sample, if you are starting with a population of California and then you only end up with a subset, it's in some ways easier to think about who made it into the sample and who didn't and why that might have happened. And that why piece is can be really informative and powerful in terms of adjusting your estimates to actually, to generalize. So like what, you, what variables do you actually need to include? If you know why people ended up in your sample and why some people didn't then you just go and measure those reasons and can then I think you would have more confidence in your ability to actually apply the generalizability estimators and believe that you're capturing all of the reasons why some people are in and some people are out. So you're talking about estimators there. I think when a lot of people learn about generalizability or they think about generalizability they think of it really as a thought exercise that I'm yeah. just trying to say does the estimate and you know the example I was using before was a prevalence but let's say we're actually talking about I'm trying to estimate the effect of some exposure on some outcome within a population and I want to say whether or not the estimate that I have is generalizable to the larger population. I think a lot of people think of that as a thought exercise, but you're alluding to the fact that this is really a, a more of a analytic technique or a method. Is that right? Yeah, you know, these ideas about external validity, generalizability, whatever you want to call it, they're not new. But I think what has really changed in the past decade or so is that they have become formalized in a way that allows us to not only think more clearly about identification, so to be like really thorough and clear about is the effect that we care about in the population we care about, can we identify it from the data? that we have observed. So like to really like take the same way we think about causal identification of identification of causal effects in internal validity to take that same rigor and clarity about defining the question and apply it to external validity. And so I think the formal theory that has been developed and kind of adopted more recently is really powerful. And it also because of that because it's it allows us to be really precise in defining our questions precisely. It then 
means that we can modify and adopt estimation procedures that we use in causal inference to use for transportability. And so it actually allows us to say, no, we don't think that the estimate that we get just from our study population is correct for the target population that we actually care about. But we do think that if we measure these other things, we can identify the effect we care about in the target population. And here's, you know, we just apply these estimators and use these additional bits of data. And then actually, we think we can get an estimate. Hearing that answer and Matt's question has really led me to thinking about the parallels between this and the sort of quantitative bias analysis fields that Matt are involved in. I'm sorry, again, to bring in internal validity as a concept, but exactly what you said about you can think about these as a thought experiment or, you know, a conceptual idea. We do that all the time with bias and many authors just sort of stop at that point in their work because you know, that's what their interests are, I guess. Or you can take it to other quantitative levels to examine these things. And so to draw parallels between internal and external discussions about validity, there are quantitative approaches that you can use for for either sort of of problem. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's certainly similar. I mean, I, I think that the difference here is that often the target parameter, so and I when I say parameter, I mean the actual effect that we care about, but also including the population we care about. I kind of wrap that whole thing into one quantity, that that is our target parameter. And so this actually gives us a way to estimate that and not to just say, okay, we've estimated this causal quantity in a population that may or may not be the population we actually care about and then think through how different the causal quantity would be in the population we care about. But yeah, yeah, I agree. Matt, would you say this type of quantitative analysis could fall under the umbrella of quantitative bias analysis or is that too focused on internal validity as an area? Yeah, no, I love the parallel that you made between the two, but I wouldn't put one under the other in that I think they're trying to do very different things. But I do think that the process by which we try and quantify the impact of systematic sources of error on our study results is very similar in a way to what we would do if we were trying to extrapolate from one study result where we did have internal validity to another population. So I I think that's a I think it's a great metaphor. And I actually think that I mean, in the same way that we are never really sure that we have met our identification assumptions for internal validity, the same is true for thinking about transportability. So quantitative bias analysis is a really good way to get a handle on how wrong might we be. And I think that is really useful and probably, well, maybe not more useful, but I I think it is really important in general. I'm I'm an advocate for it in general. So yeah, I I think it it should play a big role in any time people are applying transportability. So you mentioned earlier, you were talking about PrEP, the HIV medication used to prevent HIV. And so say we're doing a big study and we want to know how effective is PrEP at preventing HIV infection, but we are concerned that the population that we studied, the results aren't going to perfectly generalize to some other population or aren't perfectly transportable to some other population. Why would the effects differ? Let's assume for the moment that I've got an internal validity. I've got no bias and minimize the amount of random error. Does it all just come down to effect modification that the reason why the effect that I observe in my population is different from what it would be in another population is because really my study is just an average of the effects of different subpopulations and those subpopulations might be very different when I move to some other group. Yeah, it can be boiled down to effect heterogeneity. I think that effect heterogeneity is probably a bigger umbrella. I use that term in kind of a, a 
as a wide net. So let's take the prep example. So prep's actually a bad example for this because it works fairly, if you take it, it works fairly well in everybody. So mm -hmm. it, I've learned that prep was not the best example for kind of exploring methods because it was like, it's all about adherence. But that's a good example. So I include things, if there are differences in mediator, if there are differences in population in like how much people are likely to actually take the drug if they are offered it, then I lump that into kind of effect modification as well. It's, it's modifying the overall effect of being offered PrEP on preventing HIV. So like I use the term effect modification as, as like very broad. Anything that would modify the causal path, whether it be through interaction or through modif directly modifying the mediating factors. And so if we lived in a world in which there was no effect heterogeneity, if the effects of everything we were interested in was perfectly homogenous across all populations, does this distinction go away? Do we not have to worry about generalizability and transportability because any estimate would be generalizable? Yeah, I think that's right. And so a really good example uh, of that is if something just doesn't work and is like truly null and is kind of a sharp null for everybody. If it doesn't work in one place, it's not going to work anywhere else and nothing is going to change that. So let's go back to the earlier question of do you have to have internal validity and then start thinking about external validity? What's your take on that? So I said false to this because I, and I've sort of been dancing around this, but I don't think of these things as being separate. I think that defining the population that you care about is part of defining a question. And so I am very much in the target validity camp of things, which is uh, something that Daniel and others have written a lot about. To be honest, I think we do this implicitly, but I think it's, it's worthwhile to be explicit about what we mean and who we care about. And we always have a target population in mind and defining it clearly is part of defining a good question. So for that reason, I don't think it makes sense to say internal validity matters more than external validity because you can have all the internal validity in the world, but if it's a population that is completely different from the population you actually care about, it, that your question is actually asking about, then we haven't actually learned anything about the target population. Okay, I'm, I'm going to come back and, and probe that more in a second, but first I just want to ask you, do you think that we ask questions or if we don't, that we should be asking questions with a target population in mind? I think we should be. And I think we should be more clear. I do think that often we have a target population in mind. And if we don't, I think that those questions are not clear enough to be really sure that we're answering the question carefully. Or I think that questions that don't have an explicitly defined target population are not complete. I think they're, they're maybe three quarters baked. So what you're saying is that, have you heard of the PICO way of, of formulating study questions? So the population, the intervention, the comparison, or the control and the outcome. So you should write your next paper, including a T at the end of that. So pico, picot, pico, pico, where you know the first P is referring to the study population, but the second T, you know, should be referring to your target population because we do studies, I guess, not just you know in the hundred thousand whatever people we're studying, but it's you know it's because we want to make a meaningful difference with the results that we have. Would you say you subscribe to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think if you read, I think it's in, 
IRB statements. I mean, there's a lot of places where it's probably on, I'm trying to remember exactly what kind of where I've seen this, but it's like written down in, maybe it's from the NIH, where the goal of scientific research is to produce generalizable Mm -hmm. knowledge. And not just knowledge that is relevant to the people you're studying, but it is in the definition. I'm fairly certain this is in IRB documentation. And, you know, I think we forget that that is the goal of science. And so, and to think really carefully, we have to think really carefully about whether or not we're doing that. So I think defining your target population as part of the question is hard. It's not easy, but I think it's what we have to be doing to be like really doing good science. And so as an example of that, would that be, okay, I do a study study in a a randomized trial of a particular vitamin and I want to know does it help you lose weight but I do it in a population what I really want to know is what would happen if I recommended to you know everybody in in the United States take this vitamin that's my so my target population is everyone in the United States say above a certain age whereas what I really have is the people in my study. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and I'm not saying that every single study population needs to be a perfect random sample of your target population. All I'm saying is that there needs to be clear, explicit thought about who the target population is so that you can do your best to then transport or assess whether or not, at least assess whether or not your results would be transportable to that target population. And I think this is a really important point because I do think that there is some confusion when people talk about generalizability therefore, if we're talking about generalizability or transportability, what you're saying to me is my study isn't worthwhile unless I have done a completely random sample of the entire population, which is not what I think you're getting at. But I think that's where people's minds go to. Can you say any more about what the differences are there? Yeah. So that is what I think is so exciting and powerful about the causal transportability methods that have been flourishing lately is that they come with estimators and they come with actual approaches to solving the problem of my study population is not a perfect random sample of my target population, but here's what I can do to still get an estimate for my target population. There's a series of steps and like actual things that we can do to fix the problem because it's not realistic that we would have perfect random samples in our studies and and it's not realistic nor is it practical but what is necessary in order for these methods to actually be useful is that you think about the ways that your study population is different from your target population and you do your best to measure those things and I think that by defining your target population in your research question you're forced to think about it from the beginning and from the design and it's a lot easier to measure things that you know you need to measure at the outset if you've planned it than trying to do it in retrospect. It's really hard to like take a study and say, oh, whoops, our study population is really different from our target population in this key variable and we didn't measure it. And then you're hopeless. So I think that life's a lot easier if you anticipate the need to transport and plan for it and build it into a study design. That's an excellent quote. Life is a lot easier if you plan ahead. From a philosophical perspective, with Matt's question, he just asked about the weight loss medication and and whether it works or not. And he said, you want to generalize to the entire population of the United States in his example. Wouldn't your goal to always be generalizing to all humans? Like, why is it limited to a a geographic area? You know, something like the United States. I often hear that as, you know, and I use it as as a teaching example. Sorry, go ahead. Wouldn't the reason, though, be that I am trying to think of as a a policymaker in the United States, what's going to happen if I make this recommendation? Whereas, you know, that's sort of how we dole out medical and public health advice 
advice. Therefore, I was thinking about it in that way. But does that mean that your study results couldn't slash shouldn't be generalizable to a population in Asia? Or so, so let's talk through that a little bit. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. So I think that the observation that this really boils down to effect modification is really useful, actually. So I think that, yes, the reason you're asking the question is kind of what defines who the target population should be. And so a lot of these things happen at a policy level or for, you know, we think of policy happening at state or federal level. So that makes sense to have that be your target population. But from the research design standpoint, you don't want to be only thinking thinking about one, you maybe don't want to be only thinking about one target population because you want your results to be able to be transported to any other population that someone might be interested in. And so when you're thinking about transporting results, there's two buckets of things that matter. So one is how does my study population differ from my target population? And so that question is obviously dependent on who is the target population. And so that is a little bit harder to anticipate and harder to say, okay, I'm gonna think about all the ways that my study population might be different from any possible target population someone might consider. But the other big thing, and arguably like the more important thing, but also is something that researchers are already thinking about is what are the key effect modifiers? What is the causal structure? of my intervention and how does my inter intervention affect my outcome? And what are the various ways that that causal effect might differ from person to person or place to place. And so to design a study that can be transportable to as many places as possible, to maximally transportable study, you would want to measure every effect modifier that you could possibly think of. And that way that once you identify where the differences are between your study population and another population, you can just then go measure those effect modifiers that differ between the two populations. Okay, and so it seems like what you're saying then is that the key determinant of the differences between what you measure in your study, assuming you have internal validity, and what you would get as an estimate of effect if you transported it or generalized it to another population are the effect modifiers. And so you need to you need to do a good job of planning for and measuring those. Once you've done that, is this really an exercise in just reweighting your data so that your study population looks like the target population? More or less, you know, I think you can argue about the various estimators you could use to achieve that, but effectively it is reweighting. And, um, you know, when there are differences in the mediator that you can't explain by, or differences in variables that modify the effect that are also affected by the intervention itself, things get a little hairy. Mm -hmm. Mediation is just tricky. So, you know, things get more complicated, but it really does boil down to various flavors of reweighting. One thing I will say that I haven't mentioned, but is so important is that you can measure all the effect modifiers in the world, but if you don't have people in your study population, like if you have a positivity violation where there are people in your target population who differ by some important effect modifier, but they do not exist in your study population, you're in trouble. You can't solve that problem. So while I, this is getting back to the question of do we need a perfect random sample of your target population, and I would say no, but what you do need is you need some representation of all of the different characteristics in your study population. With the, the reweighting, I think you called it flavors of reweighting, which I, I really love, <laughs> you know, and these estimators you talk about. Can you tell us a little bit more about the different types of estimators that are out there for people who are interested in doing this? 
Yeah. So, you know, they kind of parallel the different types of causal effect estimators that people are probably familiar with. So there is inverse weighting based estimators. Actually, this is probably the place where the generalizability versus transportability distinction maybe is approaches some sort of practical guidance in that depending on whether or not your study population is a subset of your target population, if it is a subset, you might you would use inverse probability weighting. If it's not, you would use inverse odds weighting. It's like inverse weighting, there are kind of the G computation-based estimators. And then there are doubly robust estimators. There's TMLE, there are other doubly robust estimators, and they're just kind of small modifications of commonly used causal estimators. And so I want to go back to the concept that you raised earlier, which was the idea of target validity. And this is something that I have heard explained by Daniel Westreich and Katie Lesko and several others. And you mentioned it as well. This, As I understand it, this is the idea that essentially what I'm trying to estimate shouldn't just be, you know, as we talked about, the effect in the population that I'm, I have in front of me, but it should be an effect that would be relevant to a population that I actually want to intervene upon to improve health. And therefore, for there is internal validity. There are biases that can cause me to get the wrong answer for the people who are in my study. But then there are these factors that I failed to take into account in terms of, as we talked about, the effect modifiers that would change the effect that I would observe in the other population that I'm trying to generalize or transport to. And what I really care about is that target validity, that last one. And so if I get the answer wrong because of internal validity problems or because of failure failure to transport correctly, I get it wrong. And it really doesn't matter which one's which. And therefore, to say that internal validity is more important than external validity or vice versa is, you know, just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm curious, A, if I'm explaining that correctly, and B, if you subscribe to that theory. I think yes to both. That was a good summary. And and you can go through the exercise of simulating examples where it would not have internal validity, but would be closer to the truth in the target population than if it had been internally valid. Um, it's really just about like the strength of the effect modifiers and the kind of the strength of the confounding that you forget to account for and just like p tweaking those different relative strengths and how different your target population is from your study population. And so are there situations where it would be reasonable to say, I'm not even convinced for sure that I have internal validity, but I still want to generalize or transport my estimates? Because that's, I feel like that's where that logic leads me. Yeah. And that is fundamentally in intention with this idea that if you don't have internal validity, there's no point to external or, or generalizability. I am very intrigued by this target validity idea, but I do get a little hung up on this idea of when would I ever want to do this? Well, I mean, I think it does make sense. And maybe this is just speaking as someone who, if I'm doing observational research, I never believe that I've fully controlled for confounding. But I, there are many instances where I would be willing to transport the results of an observational analysis, even knowing that I don't fully believe that I've completely accounted for confounding. And those instances would be if I think I've accounted for the big confounding factors where there might be some residual confounding that is or you know some confounders that have some small effect that I don't believe that I've fully accounted for but I've accounted for the big ones and I have measured all of the really important effect modifiers and so I think that kind of the leftover confounding is not that important relative to everything else. 
So to me, this is really a revolutionary change in the way that we think. I agree. And I'm curious, you know, a last question to you would be, given that we struggle now to even incorporate generalizability into our curriculum, how do we get people to to change their way of thinking to start to incorporate this target validity approach when they are designing studies, when they're thinking about the results of their studies, when they're trying to draw conclusions. How do we how do we make this change? I mean, this is maybe going to be a little bit too radical, but I think we should just do away with the concepts of internal and external validity as separate things and just stop thinking about it that way. Because I think it's hard, once you've learned it that way, it's hard to stop to unlearn it that way. I mean, I, I spend all my time thinking about this stuff and I still have a hard time. But I, I do think it makes sense to think more about not internal or external validity or even I mean those concepts and what they mean but rather just like this is my question it is a well-defined question that includes what my target who is my target population am I answering my question and to just to think about identification as one whole thing not just identification of in your study sample but also like to fold in kind of the transport identification as part of one identification process and then kind of go from there and it, and it you know mathematically it makes sense to do that anyway and i think if you're if you're working through the steps of identification you there's no reason not to it's just how we're trained so i think it's an uphill battle for sure but i do think we can get there and i think that there the benefits of doing it you know to me it seems like a really clear path forward I think it's it's revolutionary and it would change the way that we are teaching. But I have to say, it's not entirely clear that the way we're doing it right now is so super successful and everyone is totally understanding exactly what we're talking about when we talk about these concepts anyway. So maybe moving towards this model would actually help people understand these concepts in a better way than, than they are right now. Yeah, I think so. And I, I will say, I think that there are some courses are kind of moving in that direction. I think, I think it's being adopted slowly, but steadily. And, you know, the term transportability is definitely, I've, when I was I was uh, co-teaching an epi methods class at UCSF, and we talked about it all the time, and it was people's first epi classes for some. And so I, and it wasn't super confusing. I think it's more confusing to people who, who have to unlearn the distinction than it is for people who are learning it the first time. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I've been on this kick for a while now of really really pushing people to to ask good study questions, but I never think about it in terms of what's the larger societal problem we're trying to solve. I'm really always asking what's the question within some subset of the population. So I, I really appreciate this. And I, I think you've done a fantastic job of helping us understand this better. So Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm happy to talk about this all the time. <laughs> it's what I think about all the time anyway. And I think there is so much more to say, so we'll have to have you back. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I want to strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. That's epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast, Casual Inference, from the American Journal of Epidemiology. If you like this, we think you'll really like that podcast so we want to thank everyone for listening and look out for our next episode next month